Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to All the Small Things with me, Venetia. This is an interview episode with Rachel Mills, who is the director and founder of Rachel Mills Literary, a London-based literary agency representing a roster of prize-winning and internationally best-selling authors. In the 20 years she has worked in the industry, Rachel has secured major publishing and screen deals for a range of authors, including Elizabeth Day and Professor David Nutt, to previous All the Small Things guests like Pandora Sykes, Ujua Seeker and Hassan Akkad. She also worked with my husband Max on his new book, You Can Cook This, which is how I got to know her over the past few years. I asked Rachel to come on the show so we could speak about the publishing industry, to hear about her best advice for aspiring authors, and how the industry needs to take better care specifically of memoir writers. And of course, I couldn't let her come on the show without sharing her summertime book recommendations, because she always has such good book recs. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. Here is Rachel Mills on All the Small Things. Rachel Mills, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I'm very happy to have you here. It feels like we have been talking about this for a little while. So yeah, very excited to chat with you today. But let us start as we always do. I would love to know if you have any rituals that you like to practice in the morning to help you feel grounded and set you up for your day. I do have something that I do pretty much every morning. Basically, my cat starts to jump on my head from about 6am onwards. She usually licks my eyelids to wake me up because she knows that that's where I wake up, which is very cute. And then over the next half hour, my partner and I basically have a sort of silent competition on who's going to get up and make the coffee. Um, But I actually like it when when I I lose the battle and I'm the one doing it because we make one of those dripper coffees where you, you slowly pour the water onto the coffee beans and they bloom. And it's the most like relaxing, slow way to make a cup of coffee ever. Then I take my coffee back to bed and then I always try and read for about an hour at least. And whether that's something I'm working on, a book that I'm loving or journalism, whatever, but just before I even switch on my phone, try and do like focused reading of some kind, I always feel like I can concentrate much better at that time. And I haven't got all the thoughts and all the clients in my head. Um, So particularly when I'm working on something, I tend to be able to respond to it really well in that period. So I try and do that most days. I imagine you're quite a fast reader. You have to be, right? Well, I don't know. People always say that. I think I can be, but actually I try and slow down because I don't want, particularly if it's a book I'm working on, I don't want to miss anything. and I want to be able to give really good feedback and I don't want to miss a single word. So I try and slow down. When I'm reading a really gripping novel just for pleasure, I am definitely racing through it. (laughs) There's nothing like that feeling of reading a gripping novel when you're just like... (laughs) (laughs) I think I miss a lot when I'm in that phase. It would be great to hear about how you got into the publishing industry and perhaps also when you decided you wanted to be a literary agent. 
Well, starting right back at the beginning, I think when I was a child and when I was at school, I had two things that I loved and they were dancing and reading. And I did actually go to dancing school, but it turned out I was not very well suited to being a dancer. You had to be very, very focused on one thing, as I think we'll probably hear in this chat. I tend to be very, very interested in lots and lots and lots of different things. So it turns out that's not an ideal personality for a dancer. So I left dancing school and then I went to study English at UCL, which was fantastic. And while I was there, I was just trying to earn money. I needed a part-time job and I'd worked in bars like we all do. And on the notice board, there was a job offer for a one day a week kind of dog's body at part of Random House, a company called Transworld, and which I'd never heard of, didn't know anything about publishing. And I went along and for the last two years at university, just did a one day a week job there and just began to love it and began to understand a bit more about publishing. Then, so I kind of thought that's what I want to do. But then after university, I was away for a bit in China and I got an email from somebody at a different bit of Random House going I've heard you might want an assistant job I've got one but it starts sort of now and I was like oh I'm in China I don't really want a job (laughs) my parents were like well you need one (laughs) so so I came flew back from China and then the next day had my interview at Ebury at Imprint at Random House and they were like great yeah can you start the next day so I did and it was all a bit of a whirlwind I went to the Frankfurt Book Fair this huge um, international book fair where about 300,000 people from all over the world come and I went there about a month after I started in publishing, had no idea what I was doing. But yeah, so I worked at Ebury for a bit within Random House. And then after a year or so, I moved across to Penguin and I worked there for about six years on the publishing side. And then I began to think that maybe I would be interested in becoming an agent and working on on that side. I began to think that maybe how I how I thought and what I was like might be suited to that. So I took a job at PFD which is a big, very prestigious uh, literary agency that's been going since 1910, one of the oldest ones. And kind of never looked back from there. I worked there for a bit. Then I worked for YMU, as it's now known, a big talent agency. So two totally chalk and cheese. And then I set up my own company in 2019. I have this kind of perhaps wrong idea of what an agent is I guess mainly informed <laughs> by friends and Joey Triviani's agent you know someone who's like <laughs> smoking on a cigarette and isn't necessarily that kind to their talent unless their talent <laughs> is making them loads of money and something that I have always found about you is that you are incredibly caring and you really do care about the people that you represent and the books that they're writing when you first started working as an agent did you have any experience of you know that kind of old stereotypical idea that I have of perhaps people only caring if that author is making them lots of money or do you think generally speaking you you received other agents in it in a way that you thought oh they're they're really great and I I think I could do that kind of way (laughs) I think I mean I think it varies massively person to person but certainly there's a generational shift the way that as far as I know literary agents used to be able to work was they you know did a deal for their author for loads of money had lunch and you know swanned off into the sunset and did another deal sounded great and unfortunately now I think our roles have become much more like managers authors are trying to navigate a world where publishers have got bigger and bigger and bigger they're huge conglomerates now so you're one author in part of this huge international machine and you need support throughout the process in a way that I think 
you know, in the 50s where the companies were all tiny little gentleman publishing companies, but the publisher probably was looking out for you in a way they still want to, I think. But I think our jobs, and I think most agents today would agree, we're so much more involved in all aspects of the process, the publicity, the marketing, the design of the cover, the, and certainly the sort of pastoral care in a way that just wasn't as necessary previously. But I also think it's it's how I want to do it. And I think, you know, when I set up my own agency, I was like, this is what the ethos will be. We will be an agency that works with our clients beyond just their money. You know, we work with them creatively on our, on their books. And we, of course, we get them the best deal. And of course, we get them paid on time. Of course, we fight for that. But we also want to make sure that everything we're doing you know, it's not just about that. Being an author isn't just about how you get paid and when. It's about every other aspect of the process. And that was very much, you know, the ethos of how I wanted us to be. So tell us about your literary agency, Rachel Mills Literary. When did you set how up? How did I come up with that name? How did, how did you? <laughs> it's inspired. Well, because all the other names that people came up with, my, uh, an agent friend of mine did suggest that I called it the Sunshine Agency. And I was like, everyone will hate us. We cannot call it that. Um, I set it up in 2019 and I... You know, I think beyond having a vision that I wanted to build a community of authors who really believed that books can make a difference, whatever type of book that they're writing, whether they're writing a novel or a cookbook or a science book or a history book or a self-help book or any kind, I think all those types of books can change the world because they change the lives of the people reading them. And I was like, that's got to be at its heart. Our way of working an ethos where every author is different we work with every client differently we don't want to one size fits all approach and we want that sort of bespoke feeling and I sometimes felt you know having worked at big agencies sometimes there's a very rigid way of working everyone has to work in the same way you know and, I, and also I think I wasn't a very good employee I got really annoyed when I had to go to like internal meetings and I just want to do things my way and so I think I had quite an entrepreneurial spirit and I was like and, and I kept putting when I worked in my old companies let's hope they don't hear this but I used to constantly be putting like yoga classes at 11 a.m in my diary because I thought well I work kind of 24-7. Why should it matter if I go to yoga at 11 or a.m. or 6 p.m.? But, of course, you have to sit at your desk all day if you work for a big company. <laughs> so I think I kind of wanted to be able to do that. But the main reason, actually, I set it up was, um, or I went for it, because um, I had quite a lot of imposter syndrome about whether I could run a business and who am I to do this. But actually, it was my clients at the time. When I started to talk to them about it, they were just so generous and so supportive and I remember Andrea Zafiraku she probably gets the credit for it all she's the amazing woman who won the Global Teacher Prize she's a deputy head in a school in northwest London and she won this prize for being the best teacher in the world she's gone on to write two fantastic books and she I broached the idea I was having of setting up an agency with her and she was like you have to do this. And then she kept texting me. She was a great sort of accountability partner. She just kept texting me going, have you set up your agency yet? Have you set up your agency yet? And all the others, you know, all of the, the first group of authors who came with me from my previous agency, you know, they were the sort of founding part of it, really. And, you know, Catherine Gray, who wrote The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober, Alice Vincent, who's come out with Why Women Grey, they were all there at the start. And it was a group of almost entirely women I think there's about 25 authors at that point who all just said, yeah, we really want to be a part of it. And it's really thanks to them. And then it, yeah, grew from there. And now we're four totally badass female agents with a whole network of um, accountants and bookkeepers and lawyers and things as well. 
and we've got about 100 clients now I think wow I love that Andrea gave you that push she's actually been on the podcast so I'm gonna link her episode <laughs> oh, in the, yeah ah. yeah loved her she was so great so I'll, I'll leave amazing. that episode in the show notes yeah she's super inspiring <laughs> so could you tell us a bit about the process of how you go about finding an author or if perhaps they come to you what that process is like and then the process of finding them the right publisher and then going on to release the book into the world um, well, I think there's so many different ways that agents in general find authors, and it's very much to do with type of books you like and or you, you're looking for and and your personality. I love meeting authors in really kind of serendipitous ways, and I, I just seem to happen quite a lot. If you will remember, <laughs> I first met I first met you and a certain Max Lamanna at a random dinner at a festival in Edinburgh, <laughs> a well-being festival, and um, here we are. You know, I think there's always such a great message in showing up at places. Another amazing agent called David Godwin, who is this you know, generation older than me, he's a really inspirational guy, and he once told me many years ago that he signed Arundhati Roy, the amazing Indian novelist. Everyone wanted to sign her. He got on a plane and went out and actually saw her in India. But his message was basically, just get on the plane. And it's like, of course, if you want to show someone that you care, show up. I definitely sort of believe in that. And also that you'd never know who you're going to meet if you go to a festival, you're accompanying an existing client to something. It's a hard time to sell books. The average full-time income of a writer has fallen by 60% with women, black and mixed race writers worst hit. How can we as book lovers best support authors that we admire? So if you want to support authors who you love, I think the best ways you can do that are by telling everyone when you love a book, because word of mouth sells books better than anything else. If somebody you trust tells you about a book, if your friend or your family tells you, you will believe it much more than a press release, obviously sent from a publisher. Also pre-order their books because this has a huge impact on their sales and also whether bookshops place more orders. So that's when you order a book ahead of publication and it arrives at your door the day of publication like a special treat and you don't get charged until that day and you can do that through Waterstones and often your local bookshop too. Also review books wherever you can if you have a good read account so that's kind of really fun. Lots of independent bookshops have that kind of facility too, bookshop.org does and yeah so if, if you personally as a reader want to support your authors that's the kind of thing you can do and it really really does help. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Authors of memoirs are often from marginalized backgrounds who write about their traumatic and distressing pasts. What responsibility does the publishing industry have in terms of the ethics and care towards these authors? And is there any progress being made? Um, I think we have a big responsibility and I think there is progress still to be made. Um, Writing a memoir particularly is big challenge because firstly often the person has been approached because of their interesting life as you say often a life that's had difficulties in it and they've often been approached by the publishing industry by an agent by a publisher they've been sort of sweet talked into doing it and of course you know hopefully with a lot of goodwill and a lot of we want to tell your story but also with you know dollar signs in their eyes and I think you know making the process very very clear. People don't necessarily know what they're getting into. If you're writing your memoir yourself, or if it's being ghostwritten, you're going to have to spend a year on your own writing or with somebody else talking about the most difficult bits of your life that you possibly haven't thought about or told anyone about before. There's a lot of safeguarding that should be happening there that completely isn't. I would be nervous about anyone doing that really without some sort of therapy in the background you know it's and it's I you know I, I'm not a mental health professional and that's the thing is like as an agent I'm not and nor are the publishers and so we don't know do we have the skills to recognize if somebody's PTSD has been triggered and I wouldn't want to you know I don't know enough about what mental health provision there should be to dictate what it should be but I you know I, I and we are increasingly doing work to find psychotherapists who can advise so there's that part of it that's just the bit where you're on your own delving into potentially traumatic times. And then when the book comes out, you're, and some of my clients have talked about this, like when they were on their own writing it down, they could cover all the nuance of everything in exactly the way they wanted to. When you're then on a podcast or a radio show or live TV and you've got three minutes to talk about your book and they pull out the most distressing part, there's no nuance you know, you're live on air, how are you, and you're meant to revisit these same parts again and again, and it's really hard to say exactly what you mean. So that whole publicity process can be incredibly stressful, and there's a lot of pressure on you to do it. You might even be contractually obliged to do it. Often authors have written into their contracts, they will do, you know, a certain number of days of publicity to support the book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you're finding it really hard, are you going to be in breach of your contract if you say, I can't do this interview? I think particularly since publishing has been seeking out underrepresented voices and has been particularly there's been really interesting memoirs um coming out but i think they sometimes forget by definition that the people writing those memoirs are often very far from away from publishing and the media and need a lot more support they don't know what it's going to entail sometimes and i think there should be a lot more awareness about that also often there's going to be a social media backlash against them from prejudice and hate and is there enough protection about that and if you're going into the public eye as somebody you know representing a particular community and I think there's something that one of my clients once said that was sort of absolutely heartbreaking she's a black author and she felt that her memoir if it didn't sell 
then no more memoirs by black authors would ever get published and it would be her fault. And to feel that burden when you're writing a book, to feel that it's your job to change publishing's whole structure is the weight of feeling that alongside everything else about publishing a book is, you know, I think something that we publishers need to be aware of, we all need to be aware of. And then, the yeah, there's also the legal issues for memoirs, which I think we always need to be much more upfront about. I've had, if you're an author whose book is whistleblowing in any way, for example, there are very, very strict rules about defamation in the UK. Publishers have very different takes on them. It depends who your lawyer is. It depends. There's no, it's not objective whether something is a defamation risk or whether it isn't. But if the whole purpose of you writing your book is to shine a light on something, to whistleblow about something, and then at the point of you writing it, because the legal read happens right at the very end, your publisher, the one who's supposed to be giving you the very platform, says, actually, no, we can't publish this, or we can't publish this bit. It's devastating. This has happened to one of my clients. Absolutely devastating. And I'm like, well, why wouldn't you tell this right up front? That kind of thing. I'm now very careful to write at the beginning of the process, find out who the lawyer is, speak to the lawyer, that kind of thing. And that's something I've learned as an agent to do. Um, but I think, you know, the corporates are big machines and individual editors, I, you know, 99% of the time have nothing but goodwill towards their authors, but they are part of a machine that is there to make money. It's a capitalist entity and they don't necessarily have the autonomy within the, the company to protect the author in, in every way, or they're not trained to do it, you know. So, yeah, I think there's um, some things I'm trying to work on. We you know, I wrote a piece about this recently that got picked up in various places. And as, as a happy result of that, I'm working with some amazing other people and the Society of Authors to, I don't think I can talk too much about exactly what format it's going to be, but we're going to try and make some guidelines and some advice for both authors and publishers. Because although I don't, I think it's a publisher's responsibility to try and fix these issues. In the meantime, I think awareness for authors, much greater awareness about what publishing process entails up front is good and what questions they can ask, what their rights are, how they can say no to things, can they ask for therapy if they need it, you know, what support, those kinds of things I think we could have a lot more clarity on. Awesome. That story about the the black author that you had who felt like a huge amount of pressure for kind of having to pave the way for other black authors is really heavy that's a lot for for them to have carried and like many other industries the publishing world faced some serious backlash in 2020 for not being inclusive and diverse enough do you think that has changed and do you think that the burden that some folks from marginalized communities have been putting on their shoulders to pave the way for other members of their community is is lightening um, I think it's changing, but I think there's a long way to go. And I think inclusion and diversity, both in terms of authors and which books are getting published and by who, and also, also the workforce within publishing, those are two things that need to change. And I think they're absolutely interlinked because if you have a diverse workforce working behind the books, you're more likely to find the authors from underrepresented communities and see their value and want to publish them. I think... You know, there's been a lot of big, serious programs and schemes in all of the big publishing companies. How much of them are really making change and how much are virtue signaling? I don't know. I think there is a lot of goodwill, but goodwill doesn't always result in actual change. And I think really big issues are that, 
you know, publishing is not a wealthy industry. Books are cheap. Margin on books is low. You know, you're never going to get a starting salary that is the same as one in banking or law or medicine or any lots of other big industries. You know, and that's why it has attracted people who have independent wealth and, you know, who can work for free and all of this. And I think it's very rare now that you would see unpaid work experience being offered. But whereas that was endemic before, and that just immediately at one fell swoop uh, means that anyone who can't afford to support themselves for a year of free work can't get into the industry. So things like that have definitely changed. And in terms of acquisition, there were definitely a lot of books addressing race and identity coming out in the wake of Black Lives Matter and in in general in recent years. And I don't think that's going anywhere. A lot of them have been really successful. I think it's driven by readers. Readers want to read books from people from underrepresented backgrounds and they're keen to. And that's, so I think all of us can keep buying the books by the authors we want to see (laughs) writing them. Um, And that's what will make the change in proving to publishers that those books are commercial. So look, publishing is slow to make changes, but I think we're hopefully moving in the right direction. And um, But I will say, I think your point about how the weight on the shoulders of anyone, either in the industry or, a, or an author, you know, if my, my colleague Nell is black and she is on so many committees and so many panels and spends so much of her time for free working on inclusion and diversity. And, you know, and I think, you know, great, of course she wants to, and she's such a passionate advocate and she has made such a big difference personally just by showing people, you know, you can be a black literary agent, you know, there's not many of them. And she was the first agent to win. Um, we have a kind of industry sort of Oscars awards thing called the Nibbies. And she was the first black agent ever to win literary agent of the year. But it comes with a lot of work that she's doing for free that, you know, her, her white counterparts aren't doing. That's really interesting. Nell is awesome. I love following her on Twitter and I'm in awe of what she's doing for the industry. Slight gear change now. I was wondering if you could tell us about one of your authors who has altered the way you think. I would say pretty much every author I've ever worked with has changed the way I think about something. But I would pick Hassan Akkad, who wrote Hope Not Fear. He is amazing and is such a force of nature. He was the ordinary guy in Syria who, because he was carrying a camera around his neck, um, when he joined a protest, was thrown into prison in Syria and, and tortured. And eventually he managed to escape and managed to make the refugee journey to the UK. And he shot to fame, even greater fame, when in COVID, he took a job as a cleaner in Whips Cross Hospital and um, started making videos about that experience. Um, he's a filmmaker. He's a brilliant author and brilliant activist and one of the most inspiring people I've ever met and his book is fantastic I agree he's been on the show (laughs) I will leave his episode in the show notes (laughs) Um, okay I would love to know what is on your summer reading list please could you suggest for me and my listeners one fiction one non-fiction one memoir and one chiclet, which is mainly for Max, my husband, because <laughs> that's his favourite genre. And I also feel bad for calling it chiclet, but maybe you'll come up, you'll tell me a better term. Well, the novel I'm really excited to read on my holidays is Yellow Face by Rebecca Kwong. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's set in the publishing industry. Everyone in publishing, therefore, absolutely loves it. It sounds really brilliant, a kind of excellent sort of satire. I'm very much looking forward to that. Nonfiction, I'm going to have to 
this is a bit cheeky putting it on my reading list, but I'm just so excited for it to come out. This is one of my clients' books, but David Nutt's book on psychedelics is out on the 22nd of June. And, you know, it's a book he's had a whole lifetime to write. It's He's the father figure of research on psychedelics. And finally, the world has become interested in them. It's absolutely fascinating. I'll reread it again. So it is on my summer reading list. <laughs> Memoir is quite left field, but I love Zachary Zane. He is an Instagram sex educator and he is amazing. And um, his memoir, Boy Slut, is coming out. So I really want to read that. It sounds it sounds both very fun and full of uh, very entertaining tales from his sex life, but also making lots of very serious points about sex positivity. For Max, women's fiction, I guess I would call it. Although I think that name is pretty offensive too. Um, so, well, should we call it a beach read? Let's call it a beach read. <laughs> and this is probably probably offensive to this book as well, but it does sound really, really fun. A romantic comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. It sounds like a romantic comedy set in the world of like a Saturday Night Live, like a Thirty Rock sort of American TV show, and tell the plot as I know it but it sounds very fun and again kind of satirical uh, but really yeah good for holidays am I allowed to pick one cookbook as well please <laughs> obviously other than Max's cookbook which is amazing uh, but we have Imad Al-Alanav's book Imad Syrian Kitchen coming out on the 8th of July that week whether you like to cook or whether you like to read cookbooks in bed it's the most beautiful, beautiful object, but it contains lots of stories um, about Syria and about Damascus and his lost city. Basically, he had four restaurants which were lost, were bombed overnight um, in Damascus. And he came over here eventually with his family and now runs a wonderful restaurant. The food is just insanely amazing in, in Soho. And so you get all of his recipes, which are absolutely delicious, but you also get a lot of storytelling. And um, there's so much goodwill towards this book. I'm sure it's going to be huge, but incredible recommendations I'm going to read them all (laughs) now on a different topic entirely we recently went out for a drink together and you kind of casually mentioned that you're electively child free and you might remember that my eyes lit up because this is something that I've been thinking about lots recently and it's also a topic I talked about on the first voice note episode of All the Small Things and I was wondering if you might be able to talk to us about this decision. Yeah and I loved your your voice note about topic and I think it's a conversation that so many people are having in so many different ways I mean I think it's really bizarre that the default position should be I'm having children you know usually when people say ask you why you did something it's why you actually did what you've done so people say why are you a literary agent they don't say why are you not a doctor or why are you not a policeman or whatever but this is the obviously because historically it was the main path that women were supposed to take was marriage and children. Um, Now, although we have a lot more freedom, we still have that kind of question and it's bizarre to me. And and especially since it seems to me like the decision to have children is such a momentous, big one, you wouldn't default to it. You would really think it through. And actually, you know, so many of my friends who who are parents, it's exactly what they did. For me, the sort of personal decision-making was something to do with I sort of want every day to open more doors, to take me to more new places, to be very outward looking. I want to meet new people. I want to you know, taste new foods. I want to go to new places. I want, I, I, I want to go 
out further and further and further into the world um, in terms of ideas and everything as well. And it feels like, probably erroneously, but it feels like to me that if you have children, for at least the period where they're small, your focus turns very inward. It turns into your household and into them, as of course it should, because you're bringing up children. And for me, I was like, ah, that's it's not where I see my life going. I want it to get broader and broader and broader. And of course, there are plenty, I'm not saying for a second, that parents are not also outward facing and don't meet new people and don't take on new, new ideas. Of course they do. But I think for me, it was that, that sense of it turns in rather than turning out in terms of your sort of attitudes. And also, I'm just not a very good stayer inner. Like it seems to me that when you've got kids, you have to do a lot of sitting in your house. And I don't really like doing that. So, so I just thought, oh, God, these evenings on the sofa. No, not for me. <laughs> Whenever I see you, that's very true to what I know about you. Whenever I see you, like, yeah, going to this, going to this, going to that. Yeah, yeah, that's what I want to do. What's been great about opening up the conversation is how many people have said to me, there are so many different ways that you can parent and kind of bring in parenting to relation different relationships that you have. And I do feel like with the work that you do, the way you look after to your clients and the way you kind of like build trust with them and kind of guide them is in some regards like a, a form of parenting yeah and I think I you know it's not sort of lost on me that the time when I was sitting thinking about setting up the agency which is now I guess when I was thinking about it, it was about five years ago I was sort of 35 and you know I clearly was had this drive to build something of my own and to nurture people it's like you know is that a sort of displaced kind of parenting urge maybe but if so great you can put that energy wherever you you want to put it and thank goodness people are putting it in all different places you know thank goodness a lot of people are putting it into children and the next generation and others aren't you know we need all of that kind of parenting you know and I'm so grateful for living in a time where there is more choice although as one of our amazing clients, Elizabeth Day, talks about, and you talked about in your last podcast on this, I don't know whether I could have children or not, and fertility is a privilege. And there's a, such a huge other conversation around that, um, that Elizabeth is really spearheading at the moment so bravely. And I think that's as important as the electively trial-free one, of course. Thank you. That was such a helpful and inspiring answer. Final question I like to ask all of my guests. What is one thing you hope your future self will have achieved? I think, I hope my future self looks back and remembers all the people I've met and thinks, oh, I didn't waste any of those opportunities to get to know other people and to appreciate them and to listen to them. That's, I think, what I'd be most proud of and what I most enjoy doing. So I hope that I look back and feel that I have done that and didn't sit in, on my sofa too much <laughs> highly triggering for me as someone who spends a lot of time on their sofa and no judgment if you do I just know that it's not what makes me feel good <laughs> <laughs> exactly yes love that thank you so much Rachel this has been so enlightening and um, a real pleasure thank you for your time thank you for having me this was so much fun <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. As always, information about my guests and all the reading recommendations will be in the show notes. And I will see you back here very soon for a brand new episode. I hope you're having a marvellous day. 
and take care. Bye-bye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.